Bibles with me to John chapter 13. Tears just began to come into my eyes as I was singing that chorus, knowing what I'm about ready to preach to you right now. John chapter 13 talks about Jesus taking off his cloak, wrapping a towel around his waist, and going onto his knees to wash the feet of the disciples. And we were just singing, he is worthy of it all. You see, the one that we worship served us. The one that we worship gave his life for us. I have the privilege of teaching in Bible college as a professor, and it's been a joy. I love it. It's, it's challenged me. Uh, some of the classes I had taught before, and I had the opportunity to go back and to get the notes, but the Lord put it in my heart to give fresh insight to what I even learn through the subjects. Well, one of the classes that I am now teaching is the kingdom of the cults, and I'm teaching how as Christians to respond. Don't let me forget to bring you up here. How are you doing, man of God? Let's give it up for a visiting evangelist in the house. I didn't even... We're going to get you up here at some point, okay? I know you didn't come for that, but we're, going... we're not going to forget about you. Oh, praise God. So I'm teaching this class on apologetics, and so what that means is I have to go and see what these doctrines of demons have produced over the years. And I want to tell you, when I say it makes me sick, I don't just mean like, like in my heart, like I'm heartbroken. That's obvious. I'm talking like, like physical sickness, like that feeling you get in your stomach after you ate too much and you feel like it's going to come back up. Like it's gross. It is sick. It disgusts me what they do to the people in the name of these religions and these false gods and even the ones who call themselves Christians. And yet when you look at the Bible, and this is where I'm, I'm just sorry. I'm just sorry. I have to say that the one who says this is like that is a spiritual cottonhead in Ninimagen. Those who use the excuse and go, well, how is Christianity any different, Pastor? How is your version any different? Maybe you make other people sick. They say you're wrong. You say they're How can we know? If you can't read this, and I'm just being very blunt right now because I love you. If you cannot read this and see the difference between Jesus and Muhammad, you are a cotton-headed ninimagen using the words of Elf around the Christmas season, okay? You are, and I, the Bible uses those words, but not directly like Cottonhead and Nindimog, and the Bible uses fool and so forth. Because if you can't see the difference, you're not reading it. You're not reading the stories. Jesus didn't own slaves. Jesus didn't have multiple wives. Jesus didn't bed a nine-year-old girl. Those differences matter. And I know we live in a, a world that wants us to accept everybody's religion. Listen, you can accept them as people and love them as people, but hate the air. I love Muslims. I love them dearly. They're welcomed in my family and in my home, and they know that. My community knows that. 
If you were to talk to my Muslim neighbors and ask them, does Joe love you? They would say, yes, he does. And if you ask them, how do you know that? They would say, because my children go over to their house and play all of the time and are treated like a son or a daughter. That is obvious. Like no one can say anything against me loving them. But I hate Islam. I hate it. Because it takes away from this and then it causes confusion to people. And then the ones that I have to study in the Christian religion that come in this name, like Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses, that come in this name and then yet change everything about who this person was. It breaks my heart and it makes me sick to my stomach because our Jesus is in a class all by himself. There is nobody like Jesus. I've been to India three times, and at any point when one of these gurus gets to the, to, you know, to the notoriety where they can be considered a god on earth, you could just look it up online. Man, they are treated with all the fanfare you could possibly ever imagine. They get so much out of that claim to be an avatar or a reincarnation of one of their gods. They get wealth. They get hoisted up. They get put flowers on them in honor all of the time everywhere they go. They get servants waiting on them. And yet when the God who created the heavens and earth, God the Son, comes in the flesh, this is what he does. He washes feet. That's what my Jesus does. It's a rebuke to all of the world religions. And yet, listen, it is an invitation. See, some preachers, all they want to talk about is the invitation. Come to Jesus. He loves you. But they don't want to talk about the rebuke that it brings. It's not that Jesus is one among many. Jesus is showing us he's the only way. And so when people say, well, I want to see God, people did see him, and they crucified him. And how did he come? He, come, he came washing our feet. I want to chuckle right now because there's a funny Instagram video that says, how do we take the celebration of our Jesus coming in a manger among the poor people of that time and turn it into this? And then it shows like 10 drummer boys ascending from the, the top of a mega church coming down from the ceiling, you know? And it wasn't meant to say you can't do that. Like, praise God that there's some church today that wants to honor the Lord. Amen. Like, I'm happy for that. Like, I'm not disappointed today that Willow Creek or our church liked it because it looked like Willow Creek, and I know they do big productions. I'm not saying that in of itself is a sin. It just goes to show us, though, like our mentality of what actually transpired that day has become so off that we think that this is the way we're doing it. And I understand from heaven's point of view, it's grandiose. And as I've said before, we shouldn't get mad at, at churches building big buildings. Christians have built castles before, amen? We can have wealth as long as we use it the right way. But if what a Christian is thinking today when they're thinking about Christ's birth, is going to their church and watching drummer boys being lowered from the ceiling. They have missed the entire purpose of this. Jesus coming to earth is the greatest act of humility. 
Our God takes on flesh. Our God becomes like one of us. This is the reason why when people in the scholarly world try to assault the gospel of John and say, well, we know it can't be based on the historical narrative of Jesus because it presents such a high view of Jesus, starting in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They say it should be rejected on those reasons. It's more mythological than historical, like the synoptics that start with the genealogies of Jesus the virgin birth of Jesus, and so forth, we can correct them and say, if the whole point of John was to make the Romans jealous of their godlike figures, then why does he put in there our God going to his knees and washing the feces and filth off of his disciples' feet? How do we now take that to the Romans and now say, well, my God's better than yours. Look at what my God does. You know, it's like comparing superheroes. That's what they would do back then. Well, are you like Thor? Do you like Thor? Do you like Black Panther? Do you like Ant-Man? What's your favorite one? Well, mine does this. Mine does this. Could you ever imagine someone saying in the middle of that, well, mine washes feet. Mine washes feces. What? You haven't proved anything about the greatness of your God by saying that. Oh, but if you're looking for the God, the true God of heaven and earth, that would make perfect sense. Because the entire purpose of humanity was to be in a relationship with God. See, the stories of our Bible are encapsulated in the heart of God. The heart of God comes through the stories of our Bible. Think about that. When he makes us, he makes us from his own image. He doesn't make us just as any random species. He already had those. But he makes us now in his own image to reflect him. And he makes us for relationship. And when we don't have that relationship, it breaks his heart. He didn't make us to be his slaves. He didn't make us to have sex with us. He didn't make us to be his, uh, his pets. He made us to have a meaningful relationship. And then when you go from the fall in the Garden of Eden, all throughout his interaction with man, even something so significant as Noah and the flood, it's breaking his heart all along the way. Who is man that God is mindful of him? Why does God care about us so? Some have tried to take this and now say, well, God has a need within him. And he had to have fellowship. So that's why he created us. No, God had fellowship within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He didn't make us out of a need. He made us out of a desire to express love. Love has desires, and God's desire was to share love. And yet we rejected that. We rejected that. And all along the way, you see God's heart breaking. You see God being grieved by how we act. And yet he has mercy on us. And he gives us second and third chances. So that by the time you come to the book of John, yes, it gives us a high Christology. But I dare to say, I can show you the same things in every one of those gospels as well. Starting the one that they think has priority, Mark, when it says, I will send my messenger before the Lord. The Lord there is Yahweh. Yahweh is coming, and John the Baptist is the messenger. So I can start right there as well. But what is John showing us? I think John, in using that language in the beginning of his gospel, is wanting us to go back to the beginning of creation and to understand this is what God is like. 
And so he's not just a power-hungry deity. He is not a self-serving being. He is a God that serves and that loves and that reaches out. That's why we find in John 3.16 that it's the motivation of love that God sends his only begotten son. For God so, what, loved the world. It's the motivation of love. And that's why we have to give both sides of this message, the grace and the truth, because this is a rebuke to any other religious system. Any other religious system cannot say that it's based on the love of God. It's not. What does the love of Allah do for a Muslim? Nothing. What does the love of all of these Hindu gods do for their followers? Nothing. You still have to do the crooked chicken. You still have to be a vegan. You still have to worship your guru. And then you're not even promised you get out of the karmic cycle. What has Buddha's love done for Buddhists? And yet we see here this is what our God's love does for us. Sacrifices himself. Even to the point when I was talking to a Muslim... And when I overheard a discussion with a Jewish person online, that when people hear this, it is exactly just as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, foolishness to them. Go to 1 Corinthians, please. You mean someone would die for me? How does that make any sense? Why would God sacrifice himself? That's foolishness. Why would we want that? You got to do it for yourself. I've heard people look me right in the eyes and say that with all seriousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? Power. Somebody say power. It is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. So if you're ever talking to somebody and you're explaining to them the gospel, just like the friend that I was talking to as a Muslim, it might be good to show them they're fulfilling the scripture. Does this seem a little bit like foolishness to you that someone dies and brings about salvation? Oh yeah, that's what the Bible said you would say. Are you frustrated in trying to explain your point of view of good works versus the grace of God? Are you getting frustrated when I keep telling you that your good works are nothing more than filthy rags? Yeah, I'm frustrated with you. The Bible said you'd be frustrated with me because you can't understand this with human intellect. The human mind has been corrupted by sin and is deceived. The human mind that is deceived thinks in the terms of works because it thinks it will work its way out of this. I could keep you here all day with examples that I have to teach with my children. When my children break something and, and for whatever reason they think they can fix it, and maybe one day they will be able to fix what they break, <laughs> but how many have seen children try to fix the thing they broke? <laughs> It makes it worse. They don't know what they're doing. I, I, I can't even trust my little four-year-old to change the batteries right. Puts them in all crooked, tries to force the cover of the battery on there, breaks the thing. Now you got to use tape to put it on there. Are you guys listening? Has anybody ever raised children before that tried to fix the thing they broke? It's not working. Boom, 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 boom. It's not working. Even adults do that sometimes, don't we? I had a problem with my garage. It wasn't shutting. It was getting stuck on uh, the, um, the little laser. It kept saying it was something was in the way. I'm like, I can't see anything in the way. So I just started kicking the thing. 
and then eventually went down, and then I brought over a, a guy who's a professional, because I don't try to fix these things. I just kick them every now and then. And then he, I said, well, why does that work? And he goes, well, probably your, your garage door is bent, dummy. That's why it worked, and you're needing to straighten it out. But, yeah, I guess the kicking worked. You didn't call me a dummy, but it just felt like that. You know, he looked at me like, yeah, you kicking it probably did something at the time, but it didn't fix the actual problem. You got it to finally go down past that thing, but you didn't fix it. And that's all, that's all it looks like in humanity. We're kicking and banging, trying to stuff the thing in, trying to put it back together, and we can't. Humanity can't fix itself. But yet we try. Why? Because we're prideful. Everyone understand this as we get ready to read this story in the book of John. God did not have to come down and condescend to our level and wash our feet, but he did out of love. And yet, the most rational thing for us is to get down at his feet, wipe them with our tears and our hair, and yet we won't do it out of pride. Do you see how we're in bizarro world? God doesn't have to wash our feet, but he does. God doesn't have to clean the mess of our lives, but he does. God doesn't have to come and sit with us at our table and endure all of the problems that we're going through. He doesn't have to do it, but he does. And he loves to be there. He loves to sit at our table. He loves to clean up our messes off of our feet and in our lives. And he does it out of love. And yet in response, he asks humanity to love him back to bow at his feet, to see him for who he is. And yet people out of pride won't budge a knee. And listen to me, my friends. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. That should put the fear of God in every person today. If you today do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will face him as your judge. Hear from these stories today that that's not the path he wants for you. His path for you is one of love and relationship. That's why just a few moments ago when we were singing, you are worthy of it all, and I started contemplating on, you know, opening up this message, and then I'm singing, you are worthy of it all, and then I'm thinking about Jesus washing feet, and then I'm saying you're worthy of it all. My friends, it captures every part of my heart. It's almost like I can't even stand anymore. I want to just go to my, my face and just kneel before him and just say, you're so worthy. I didn't deserve any of this. And yet you, you offer this to me. And you'll see this now in the life of Peter as he tries to argue with Jesus. Go with me to John chapter 13. Somebody say, wash me, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Will you highlight that last part there? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. If anyone here has a poetic heart, write something about that. Write a song about that that he loved his own, and he loved them to the end. I could preach a whole message just speaking about the love of God and not only how he loved those disciples to the end of this earthly ministry, but how he has loved all his disciples and how he has loved them all to the end. I can think right now about pastors 
retired missionaries that are in nursing homes right now. And nobody remembers the sacrifices that they have made for the Lord. And yet Jesus is loving them to the end. He's going to bring them home. I'm thinking today about all of the brothers and sisters that we've had to say goodbye to. Some that we've lost in accidents quickly. Others that we've seen deteriorate. One of our precious brothers lost his wife just at a, a sister church here in the city to cancer after she fought it for years. And yet the Bible says Jesus loved her to the end. You didn't disappoint him, sister. You didn't disappoint him, brother. It was your time to go home. Amen? At the same time, we will try to kick cancer's butt as often as we can in Jesus' name, and we will keep praying. But I just love that because it says he loved them. That's his motivation. Does everybody see that? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. They asked one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, what have you learned after all of your studies? And that was what he responded. Knows all the languages of the Bible, wrote all of these theological books. What have you learned? What have you taken away? What can you pass down to us so that we can remember your life's work? Jesus loves me. Jesus loves loves me. Hallelujah. He saved a wretch like me out of his love, and he made me righteous like him. He took me from being a sinner to a saint. Hallelujah. Jesus loved me to the end. That's my prayer today. I want to be loved by Jesus as his friend, not just in the general providential way. You know, God can love us all in that way. But I want to be like Abraham. I want to be a friend of God. When I say goodbye to this world, I want to be welcomed into the arms of my Savior, and I want him to say, welcome home. Amen? And when I get to heaven, I don't know about y'all, I don't want heaven to feel strange to me. I don't want it to be an awkward or a weird reception. I want to go to heaven and say, this feels like my prayer closet. This feels like my car ride on the way to church this morning. I recognize this place. This is my secret place. This is where I've spent time with him. How many want heaven to feel like home when you already get there? When you get there, because you've already been there. You've already been there. You've already experienced what it's like to know him and to be in his presence. The evening meal, verse 2, was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. In the midst of this great love story between God and humanity, we see the devil taking advantage of those who are willing to be used and abused. Remember that deception starts with a choice to be deceived. Oftentimes I look at these cult followers and I feel so sorry for them and angry at the leaders for what they have done. But there's a, a, a part of misappropriation of anger. It ought not to be only towards the leaders but also towards the followers. Not saying they deserve all of the abuse and the things that follow, but an anger that would say, why did you put up with this to begin with? Why did you ever think that praying five times towards Mecca was the way to go? Because the Bible says all of us 
All of us, and that means from wherever you are across this world, are born with the God-shaped hole that only God can fill. And he will draw you to himself and convict you of idolatry. He will convict you of the moral law of perversion. There will be no excuse for those things on Judgment Day. And I thank God that you see throughout the testimonies of missionary movements that God has reached them through their conscience and creation. I'm not saying that the one who becomes brainwashed, the one who becomes imprisoned, is now responsible for all that they suffer. In no way am I saying that. What I am saying is there needs to be a reality check for anyone who thinks they can walk away from Jesus and find a better way. I was listening to some of these testimonies of these cults and how they are deranged and how they corrupt people. But I always listen to the beginning part carefully, especially here in America, because that will tell you a lot. The last one that I was just listening to about the cult we were discussing started off like this. I was in a Pentecostal church. See, they were hearing the truth, weren't they? Come on. And then one of my friends started going to this cult. And then they started to bring me, and I started listening. See, that's where the mistake happened. I'm not saying that they deserved every consequence that came after that, but I'm saying they need to be held responsible for the choice they made to walk away from that which they knew was different. They knew that this was based on the historical principles of the Christian faith that had been handed down to them. And so yet I began to realize that there's kind of in all of these stories, especially those from Christian backgrounds, a similarity of pride in those who join these cults and religious movements, a pride that says, well, I know better. The Trinity can't be the truth. It doesn't make sense to me. Oh, you know, that pastor always spoke about hell. I was listening to Mormon testimonies, and one of the Mormons were saying, you know, the preachers always used to preach to me about hell, but now I understand that there's multiple chances for people even after they die. That's why we get baptized for the dead, so that now in the underworld, they can have a chance to repent, so we'll do the baptism for them. Wow, that, 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 that sounds like it's got some sugar sprinkled on there. You mean if my relatives didn't accept Christ, I can go be baptized for them and then possibly they get another chance in the, in the afterlife? But it's a lie from the pit of hell. What if I told you right now, I've, I've gotten a, a million dollars for you, you know, and I'm going to baptize you for that. Would you, you know, what would you think? Oh, yeah, if it's true, I'll do it. But what if it's not true? You've wasted your time. What if it's a lie? What if you went into debt thinking that I was going to give you the million dollars and it was going to pay for that debt? These people are still in their own sins, and they're thinking they may even have a chance after life because someone will get baptized for me. The Bible says after this we face judgment. Amen? That's it. And so here we see Judas being deceived. Now ask yourself this question. How could Judas be deceived in the presence of Jesus Christ? And then now come to the reality of how anyone is deceived. There is nothing that can ever manipulate the human heart into truth. I want you to understand that very clearly. Even when we pray, we cannot pray prayers of manipulation for the human heart. Jesus, when he gave us free will, made that the playbook for humanity. When I talk to my Calvinist friends, I agree with them in one sense that God providentially could have chosen who would be saved and who would be doomed from the womb. That could have been what he did. He could have did that. 
But he didn't, and he revealed in the scriptures why he didn't. He told us that we would choose. And so it's not God asserting his will over us. It is us having a will to either submit to him and say, thy will be done, or to maintain a will of carnality and of sin, and then on judgment day, him looking to us, saying, your will be done. Now depart from me. Does everybody get that? This is the truth of the Bible. So why is Judas deceived? Because he chose not to believe. It's that simple. You can be, everyone get this, everyone look up at me please. You can be this close to Jesus and still be deceived, then be possessed by Satan and end your life and face eternity in hell. That's why Paul said, take heed when you think you stand lest you fall. Anyone who looks at the story of Judas and doesn't see as a warning sign is not understanding the reality of what happened. Well, I would never do that. Well, that wouldn't be me. Oh, Judas, that was just a one-time situation. Yes, he had a special part to play as the son of perdition, but God did this because he knew he would betray him. In other words, the foreknowledge of God put a plan into action to use his betrayal for the glory of his kingdom. God never intended for Judas to have to do this or willed for Judas to do this. He simply used the knowledge that he had of Judas's betrayal for his glory. How many know when God plays chess, he already knows the end from the beginning? He knows your moves ahead of time. But the moves you make are still your moves. And so we see here in the life of Judas that deception is very deceiving. More than likely, Judas is deceived because he has no longer trusted or believed in the plan that Jesus offered for salvation. He's heard and seen enough to get the idea, at least in a summary, of what Jesus is planning to do. He probably didn't understand all the details, but in some way, he gets the point, this one I'm now following is not going to pull out a sword and start killing people. And what he wanted was the Messiah in all the glory that had been prophesied in places like Daniel and in Isaiah. He wanted that Messiah to be the conquering king. And so because he doesn't see Jesus do what he wants to do or wants him to do, he now is going to betray him and throw him to the Romans. I want you to think about this. All of our deception, all that which can deceive us, my brother and sister, will come from a root of us not liking God's plan or his ways of doing things in our lives. Every one of them. Think about it. Have you ever met a backslider before? And you, and you met, have anybody met a backslider? You all still up? Have you ever talked to them? Okay. And you sense the pride, right? But what's the root of that pride? They didn't like what God was doing or what God was saying about the plan or the way that he wanted them to live, or what they needed to do. That's just the way it is. They come away from it going, if I were God, or if I were Jesus, or if this were true, it wouldn't be this way. It wouldn't be done this way. I wouldn't have faced that situation this way. That's why in going back to that discussion of the cults, that's why they offer that alternative. Oh, you wouldn't, you know, if you were Jesus, you wouldn't send anybody to hell. Okay, well, great. Well, we've got to we got a cult that now says they don't have to go to hell. They can get another chance. 
Oh, if you were Jesus, you wouldn't condemn and judge same-sex relationships? No, I wouldn't do that. Okay, great. Well, we have liberal Christians that will affirm the homosexual movement. Do you see how that works? And so Judas, he's choosing his plan over God's plan. And that, my friend, is the heart of Satanism. It's not merely the evil that comes out of it. It is Satan as an angel desiring some place, some notoriety, some plan, some way of doing things that God is not doing. And then what does he say? I will ascend. I will make my throne up here. I will take that which God has not given to me. And then when you look to Adam and Eve and you see it play out, it's the exact same thing. All the trees are theirs. All of the earth is theirs to be fruitful and multiply. But what does Satan say? This, what you have been forbidden from, this is what you really need. And so now they come into a disagreement with God's plan. God's plan's not good enough. God's plan doesn't meet all of their needs according to their fleshly desires in their mind. That's what they think, and that's the heart of the deception. That's the heart of betrayal. And that's why, brothers or sisters, I, as your pastor, who love you and am there to counsel you, not just preach to you, but also to give you godly counsel, I'm here to say to you, at any time you find yourself at odds with God's plan, you are sharing in the rebellion of Satan and of Judas. And that's why you should be quick to repent. I should be quick to repent. Any time I complain about such and such a thing, that's why even as I've pastored this church, I've had to guard my heart because sometimes, my brother, I, I look at the church with the, the mega church and the ability to bring down the, the drummer men and all of those things, and I go, I wish I could have that. Well, the moment that my wish becomes a disgruntle against God, I am now saying that his plan for me is not good enough. That I demand something from him now that he hasn't given me. Didn't John the Baptist say, one can only receive from God that which is given to them. That's why John the Baptist said, I'm not jealous of Jesus because I can only receive what the Father gives me. I've had the opportunity to be his forerunner. I could have been born as a dog. <laughs> I'm happy to be here, not sniffing my own tail in Jesus' name. Come on. And so that's why we have to be careful when we pray in faith, believing God for things we don't yet see, we have to be careful that in that desire for God's plan, we don't become disgruntled and become privileged to the point where we spit and disrespect what God has called good in our lives at this moment. I cannot curse this stage and wish for a bigger one and then be blessed by God. I have to bless this stage, be content in the sense that, Lord, you're good enough for me in this church on this stage. I don't need more of you for me to become content. I am content with you now for me then to move from this stage to a stadium filled with 100,000 disciples. You don't curse what God is doing and then expect him to bless you. That doesn't mean you say this is the end. That doesn't mean you close your eyes and say it's done, I'm going to die here. 
You believe God for the more. You look for the more, but you trust him in the moments that you're in. You see, Judas could not trust Jesus as the Messiah who first had to suffer. Is Jesus coming back as a king? Absolutely. Is the devil going to get his butt whooped? Absolutely. Are the enemies of God going to get crushed by the sword of the Lord? Absolutely. But he needed to trust Jesus in that moment. He needed to bless Jesus' plan in that moment, even though it did not make sense to him. And that's why I always look to the patriarchs like the Bible teaches us to in the hall of faith to look to them as our example so that we don't get distracted and deceive and sin the sin of Judas and Satan. Look to Abraham. He didn't have children, yet God said he would be the father of many nations. You see, that's trust, isn't it? And then you look to his life and all that God did in his life, but yet he never saw all the 12 tribes. He never saw the promised land, but he was faithful even unto death. And as the Bible said, he was a friend of God, and Jesus loved him to the end. Oh, that we would be faithful like our father Abraham. Instead of being a generation that wants a microwave right away, your way Burger King type of religion. Let's... Trust God in this process. Let's trust him. And yet believe God for the great things that he has. I've had friends say to me over and over and over again, Joe, God's got more for you than what you see at this storefront. God's got more for you than what you've ever seen in these ministries that you lead. But then when I tell them, I will trust him until that comes, they then put somewhere in there, well, do this, do that, do this, do that. And I'm not saying there couldn't be a formula that God would give me. He did tell Abraham to do certain things. But I notice about those same people is that they become anxious in their plan that God has for them. And as they go to achieve things that are greater on the outside than what it looks like I've achieved, they pay prices for it that I'm not willing to pay, nor do I believe God asked them to. It costs them their marriage. It costs them their mindset. I've had my friends after building projects have to take mental medication because they suffer depression after two years of raising money. Are you listening to me? And I'm not saying everything. I said, are you listening to me? I'm not saying everything that we're going to achieve in God's kingdom won't come with a price that maybe will surprise us, but I don't think God asks us to pay those kinds of prices. Well, I've got my mega mess, I mean my mega church, Oh, well, I've got now the big budget. Oh, but psychologist, can you please subscribe to me the serotonin medicine because I'm so depleted, I have nothing left. God doesn't bless us with curses. And he doesn't bless what we have cursed. It's a simple concept in the kingdom, but we have to get it. And your faith because I know what's happened in my life, will be tested on whether or not you get this simple concept. He blesses what you bless and are faithful in. That's it. What you are faithful in, he will make you fruitful in. If you curse what he has blessed, God even allows us as children to go out and do a bunch of wild things in his name, 
but he will not bless it. The wealth that is added will come with heartache, where the Bible says he gives us wealth and he adds no trouble to it. So brother or sister, if God is promoting you, if he's given you a job, if he's given you a relationship, if he's given you new appointments in this church, it will never come at the cost of your peace of mind or at your Christian testimony or at the cost of your obedience to the prayer life and devotional life that God has for you. And so Judas couldn't do that. He doesn't want that. You're not good enough for me, Jesus. Make something happen. And when Jesus doesn't, he goes, well, I got a way to make something happen. I'll betray him. I'll hand him over to the Romans by the Jewish leaders, and then we'll see now what he'll do. Maybe I can force him into following my plan, which is where he becomes a conquering king. How far was Peter from Judas's mindset? If you study the scriptures, Peter was probably only one or two steps away from a Judas, if not on the same mindset. Because when Jesus doesn't fight, he fights. That sounds noble. I get it. And we as preachers sometimes make fun of, uh, of Peter for that, but yet we secretly relate to that, you know? Sometimes we want to fight when Jesus is telling us to turn the other cheek. I feel like Peter pulling out my sword. Well, hold on. That's a satanic heart. And though we find humor in it, let us not in any way admire it because it was a satanic heart almost to the point where it would have pulled Peter all the way out. And Jesus says, if I wouldn't have prayed, you would have, you would have been sifted. Some then ask, well, why didn't he pray for Judas? That goes back into the previous chapter. Judas had crossed too many lines. Jesus was done. It's over. That's a true statement, my friends. That's where we say to the Calvinists, you're right on the reprobation doctrine. There are people who are reprobate. There is no more grace for them. And judgment had come upon some of those Jewish leaders. Isaiah had prophesied it. So when we tell people there are second and third and fourth chances, we need to also remember there's also people like Pharaoh who God hands over to the hardened heart, and it's over for them. Now, lest you be in turmoil over something like that, the hardened heart is not seeking to come back. So those of you who struggle with sin and are in a process of repentance, know that you are not a reprobate. So do not have fear of reprobation. The reprobate, like Pharaoh, has no more heart of repentance. He cannot repent. He only sees the stubbornness of his sin. Can I hear an amen? And the same thing is like with Judas. There is no repentance. Even though he'll throw back the money, he will end his life in suicide, proving to us once again that suicide is a damnable act. It is a way for the human to get out of accountability of the actions and the things that they're in. I know there are complications in our world with suicide, medical issues, and those are things that I discuss more in depth. But this kind of suicide in the right mind, out of anger and rebellion, taking one's own life, is obviously a way of denying Jesus as Lord, and no one should expect to go to heaven after that. Can I hear an amen? If it's a tight but right truth today. Somehow now we're making those who commit suicide our heroes, and we shouldn't. It's a wickedness, and it's a disease that is now spreading by popularity. They have actually talked about this in the world, that it's out of hand, and the reason why it's out of hand is because they have glorified it so much, and now they're realizing they're in trouble for that. They have glorified the suicidal as someone fighting a battle like as if it was with cancer and, and they were such a great person and they don't go into the motives of their heart. They don't talk about their suicide letters. They don't describe them as who they really were, were people of pride and anger and hatred towards others and themselves. 
And so by glorifying that, now we have a suicide epidemic. And now they're trying to stop it. And now they're trying to say, stop talking about them in these terms. There's actually terms that they want you to use and not use because what it does is it inspires copycats. And you can look it up online and see the journals written about that. That's why I say to people, if all suicide was a result of mental illness, why is it copycatable? Can I copycat schizophrenia today? I mean, you could pretend for a little bit, but it's not going to actually show up on the monitor, right? I mean, your brain is not going to become schizoid because you want to copycat that. You see, the copycat nature of this shows it is learned behavior. It is not something that is inherent to the mind. It is something that the body does to the mind over time. And if the soul does not stop it, it will consume the mind. And so anyone here today that are tempted within in your life, please know today about Jesus' love, that he will love you to the end. And it would be better for you to have a hard life and a life that you don't understand and even a life where you lose some limbs and then get to be with him in his presence forever than for you to go to hell with all of your limbs and an easy way out of these problems. Can I hear an amen? Amen. amen. Praise God for his truth. Jesus knew that the Father, verse 3, had put all things under his power. Jesus is in control of this situation. This is not out of his control. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. That's my Jesus. So he got up and told them to all worship him, put flowers on him, give him offerings, then hoist him on a throne and walk him all around Jerusalem. Is that what it says? Everybody see the juxtaposition right here. Everybody see how it almost is contradictory. He knows he comes from God. No one else has done that, the book of John says. Angels have visited, but no one has come from God's presence in the flesh like him. No one. He's unique, only begotten. He knows that all things are under his power. He knows that he's going back to God. And what does he do? Wash his feet now. Do you see that when you understand who God says you are, you can act as God says you're supposed to act? When you know who you are, you can do what God says you can do. You have to believe that you are who God says you are and that you can do what he says you can do. Jesus had no problem having a towel because he knew his title wasn't on the line. Because his title had been given by Jesus Christ. The title of Messiah was what? Uh, the title of Messiah had been given by the Father and called him Jesus Christ to clarify. Amen? He knew he was Yahweh, he was Jehovah saves, Yahshua Mashiach, the Christ, the anointed one. We see so often that people want titles instead of towels, but the Bible actually says you can have both. There's not anything wrong with a title. Oftentimes people preach this and say, I want a towel, not a title. I want to wash feet, you know, and they start doing all that. Okay, well, then we won't call you bishop anymore. Okay, Fred. And they get all upset. Well, I'm bishop Fred. Well, I thought you just said you want a towel and not a title. You can have both. Paul's the apostle. That's a title. Jesus is the Christ. That's a title. The Bible says there was prophets and teachers and evangelists in the early church. Amen. Those are titles. We shouldn't make those a part of our pride in identity. We should take identity from Christ. But those titles help us recognize what people's positions are in the church. Elder is a title. Deacon is a title and so forth. And so the problem isn't the title. The problem is whether or not 
you have a towel. Because those that only have titles and not towels become dictators. But God is looking for people that he can give titles to that then will have towels and will do something with that authority that will change the world. In other words, God doesn't want us to all walk around as a bunch of nobodies just saying, well, you know, I'll just do whatever the Lord wants me to do. No, God wants to raise up mighty evangelists. God wants to raise up mighty prophets. God wants to raise up mighty elders. But he wants them to have towels wrapped around them, ready to serve and be like Jesus. Amen? He knew that the Father put all things under his power. He had come from God, was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, which would be like his cloak. He's not naked here, by the way, which cult leaders have tried to say. You would be surprised what people try to read into Scripture. I always say, I'm reading the black. You must be reading the white. You're making stuff up here. He takes off his outer clothing, still having on his normal clothes, taking off his cloak, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Why did I put as a reference there the temptation of Jesus? Because I want you to understand that any time you're not willing to be a servant of the Lord and to do what he's asked you to do, it's because you have fallen for the temptation of the devil to question your identity and purpose. Going back to this example, why can I enjoy serving you here from this church while I have my heart also set on 100,000? Because I understand who I am right now is not based on my circumstances. My identity is based on what Jesus has said. If Jesus has called Abraham the father of many nations, he's the father of many nations even if he doesn't have a child. Did everybody get that? You are who God says you are regardless of your circumstances. And that's why Jesus could take the role of a servant because he wasn't intimidated by anybody, what they would think about him, and he knew that he could serve and be the, the Messiah at the same time. That's why when we went to my wife and I to get some new cars because we're making swaps with the church van, instead of the church having one van, now they're going to have two vans. Let's give it up for Jesus. Come on. We just felt the Lord do some things. And now we're going to take the 25000 that we raised and buy that van. But my wife and I switched out our van for an SUV. We're just trying some different things. That's why when I go there to the car dealership, I can come there right after I got done uh, snowboarding in my dirty clothes and these, you know, weird looking like uh, sweatpants that I have on that I wear shorts over. It's kind of weird looking. I wear these like long johns and then I put shorts over them. Maybe it's not as weird as you might think it is, but I, I, explaining it sounds weird. And I can come there smelling like sweat. You know why? Because I know my credit's good. That's okay. Hey, man, I smell. I got my wakeboarding stuff on. I look weird having joggers on with shorts over on top of them, you know. But you know what? My credit's good. Check the credit. You could have somebody come in there in a three-piece suit and their credit's bad. They're not walking out with a car. Are you listening? You see, Jesus didn't need to impress people with his title. He already knew who he was. It didn't matter to him if someone would have walked by or saw him in that upper room cleaning the feet. And if they would have said, oh, man, is that just one of those servant boys? Is that just one of those poor people? It didn't matter to him because he knew who he was. And if you know who you are, you'll do what God asks you to do regardless of how it looks to the outside world. I love what the Escobals are doing right now, volunteering in the youth group. Let's give it up for some volunteers coming to be elders and take over and, uh, and work with the team. 
and put things in order? Well, you know what? Someone might look at them and say, man, you're too old to be doing that. Youth, youth pastors need to be hip wearing Jordans. You know, you're not this, you're not that. You know what? Who cares what they think? They're willing to serve Jesus. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. Same thing like my brother when we go out preaching on the west side. You know, sometimes I meet these bishops and these different pastors, and they roll up in different things, and they want me to kind of compare nickels and noses with them. Man, that's not important to me. You know what's important to me is that these boots were made for walking, and that's just what they're going to do, and they're going to walk all over the devil and take back land in Jesus' name. These boots are on the west side. That's all you got to worry about. I'm a pastor by God's grace, and I'm kicking the devil's butt right here loving God's people. I don't have to prove my title, how many books I wrote, well, you know, how many degrees that I have. All I have to do is serve God because I'm not here to prove it. I'm here to live it in Jesus' name. And when you know that you know that you know, you don't have to prove it either. When you've gotten over the temptation of trying to impress people, you can be what God called you to be. And then that will be impressive. Yes, people will follow you. Once again, this does not say anything goes, show up to work unkept, you know, and just say, well, I love Jesus, and he'll bless me here. No, be the best in all you're supposed to be. And if appearance is a part of your job, then make sure you come dressed to the nines. But do not live your life trying to fill in the gap of your insecurity to impress people or have, in other words, to give people the power of filling up your love tank because you're so insecure all the time. That's why I say to you most time when I'm rebuking what's going on in the church world today, it's not even that the pastors themselves are worshiping the devil and satanic. They're just insecure and they don't have a backbone. Many of my friends who make the mistakes of that kind of ministry, as we were talking about before, aren't bad people. It's just they're insecure. They don't feel secure going to the denominational meeting with the same disciples that they had last week or, or the same size church. If they're not blowing and going, if they're not presenting something before people that makes them go ooh and ah, then they don't have a security in themselves. Now, of course, I want to grow. I want to have more today than I had yesterday, but I don't need to lie to you in Jesus' name. Amen? When the finances come out this year and they look amazing, I'll tell you how it was compared to last year, up or down. It doesn't matter. It is what it is. Then from that point, we can now pray and ask God to do great things. Amen? I never want to settle, but at the same time, I don't want an insecurity that forces me outside of the will of God to impress people so that I can have my love tank filled. Let Jesus fill your love tank, amen? Let Jesus give you words of affirmation. Let Jesus give you the gifts that he has for you and pour himself out, for, and then you pour yourself out, amen? Takes off his outer garment, begins to wash their feet. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And it's like obvious, yes, I'm going to do it. Do you see me do it for everybody else? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. You see, there you go. That's Jesus' word. You don't understand right now what I'm doing, but you will understand. Can I hear an amen? You will understand. What should he have said right there? He should have said, yes, Lord. Si, senor. Amen. Come on, somebody say, si, senor. Yes, Lord. Si, senor, Jesus. Let's go. I mean, there's nothing else to argue about. Wash it. But no, he puts right in there his negative. No, you shall never wash my feet. Do you see how close he is to Satan? How close he is to Judas? He's closer than we think. He's close, isn't he? Because he is seeing Jesus do something that his Jesus shouldn't be doing. It's not noble. 
Sometimes we say these things are noble, but it's deception of noble, nobility. Just like when we go out to the abortion clinic, those people wearing those pink vests think they're on the side of justice. If you were to put them on a lie detector test, and if you ask do you believe you're on the side of justice and these abortion uh, pro-lifers are, are nincompoops? They would say, yes, I'm on the side of justice. These are the people on the, on, on the opposite side. The pro-lifers are on the side of injustice. And I guess, and you know what I think? I, I bet you they would pass that lie detector test. They truly believe they are on the side of justice because their justice compass is broken. They don't have God as their true north, so they don't know what justice is. And it's the same thing here with Peter. Peter thinks he's being noble. You can't wash my feet. You can't wash my feet. It reminds me of being a pastor here. Sometimes I try to take some of you out to eat, and you're like, oh, no, I'm not hungry, pastor. I'm okay. No, I'm not hungry. And you're lying, lying and lying to the pastor. You just don't want to receive it. See, that's a form of pride, right? But then there's others of you. Pastor, when are you taking me out again? So then you got the both sides of pride there. One is the self-abasing. Oh, me. Oh, I'm just a servant, Pastor. You don't have to take me out to lunch. Oh, I'll, I do it for free. No, 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 no. And I understand that's a form of humility, but you have to let me bless you. You have to let me serve you. You can't be the only one serving you. I have to serve you. Somebody say self-abasement. So that's someone that doesn't allow themselves to be served. And it's really a form of pride because you know what? When someone serves you, it also takes humility. It takes humility for you guys to serve me. I sometimes don't want you to serve me either, like pastor appreciation. No, I don't want that. Because you know why? It takes humility for me to be up here and to hear you speak about what God has used me to do and for me not to get self-absorbed. That takes a form of humility. But on the other side is that self-adornment. I deserve pastor appreciation. I deserve them to take me out to eat. They don't do enough. You see, that's also a form of pride. So here you see in this situation, you see, G, uh, you see Judas being the one that's self-adorning. He's saying, I need the money. I need to be in charge. Jesus is not doing this right. I'm going to force him to do what I want to do. I'm the one that's calling the shots. There you have the self-adornment. You have Judas. And then at the other side here, you have Peter, self-abasement. Oh, no, don't do that, Jesus. No, don't do And what does Jesus say back? Oh, it's okay. I'll skip you and come back. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Sometimes I talk like that to my kids. Unless I wash you right now, you'll have no part with me. God, send them to the bath. Go take a bath. One of the children I looked at the other day, she's like, I'm going to go take a shower. I'm like, you're old enough to do that now? She's like, Dad, I've been doing it for a long time. I'm like, okay. But others of my kids, I'm like, you better take a bath. You better take a shower. You have no part of me. Any, any parents got to talk to their children about taking baths? That's what Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Why is that? Not only the humility taking place, but the washing of the feet is going to symbolize the spiritual cleansing that Jesus brings. Let's keep going to verse 9. Then Lord Simon replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Notice he goes from self-abasing pride to self-adorning pride within one sentence. No, 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 Peter. It's now, now it's not you're in charge and you decide how, de how Jesus gives you a bath. No, no, no. You're not in charge, Peter. Peter, your pride is being seen here in your self-abasement, and your pride is being seen here in your self-adornment. Peter, this is how you do it. And so oftentimes, I'm telling you, I've seen Christians fall into both of those ditches. Oh, no, no, I don't need any help. I had an elder, one of our dearest elders of the church, end up leaving the church because when we were doing a building project, he never asked for help, burned himself out, and then resigned from the church, and we haven't really seen him around since. 
What should he have done during that time? Ask for help. But he kept saying, no, I'm good. No, I'm good. I got it. He had that man pride come up. And so he knocked himself right out of the call of God on his life. And then over here, we've got other people, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And, and you know, they put all this responsibility on themselves, and then they're nowhere to be found. They speak a good game, but they don't live it out. They want it their way. They only want to do it their way. And so then when the service doesn't look like the way they pitched it in their mind, all romantic and all, you know, with the filter of, of the eyelashes and everybody loving on them, they see that ministry is not cute and cuddly and pretty. They want out. Because it was all about them. See, both things are a form of pride. Peter only wants to be, uh, he, he wants control, so it doesn't matter about the washing. In one sense, it's don't wash me. And then in another sense, give me a bath. It's not about the washing for him, it's about the control. And what is Jesus showing us? That he has given up the control to his father. And he trusts him entirely. And Jesus is asking us to trust him like how he trusts the father. Think about that. That's why men today, sometimes you fall into these two ditches, and I see you in your marriages, I see you out trying to make it work, and you don't understand. It's not one or the other, it's actually neither, it's in the middle serving God. Well, I'm just working, and I'm doing all of this, and I try everything, and it doesn't work. And then I tell her this, and I tell her that, because you told me to rebuke her, and it doesn't work. It's not how marriages are. It's not you feeling sorry for yourself, and it's not you stomping around. Both of those are signs of control. Listen to me, husbands and wives. Both of those are signs of control. The one who trusts God just says, I'll do what God said to do. Without a martyr's complex, well, I always do this, and it never works. Without that, and without the, I demand, I demand, I, it's right in the middle. This is what God said, I'm doing it with joy. Whether they respond well or not, I'm doing it. I'm serving. I'm here to give. I am your servant. How can I wash your feet today? And I will lead and I will teach, but this is from the position I'll do it from, from the position of I know who I am and I'm willing to serve. Amen? So he's strike one, strike two, and then you got Judas, strike three. We're seeing the flesh manifest over this simple concept of Jesus washing feet. He said, those who have a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Here we see about entire sanctification. The washing will be clarified even more in John 15 and, and 16 as he talks about the Holy Spirit. And so what this washing of the feet means is that we may be saved and sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost, washed clean. But sometimes in our daily lives, we may sin and need our feet to be washed. That is what Jesus is teaching them. Jesus is showing that you're clean as a Christian, that you are going to heaven. But if there are parts of your life that step into places where you ought not to step, you are to ask Jesus to cleanse you and to forgive you. And notice this, that the position of Jesus cleansing and forgiving us is from the position of him serving us. In other words, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is forever offering us his sacrifice. Isn't that wonderful? That he doesn't, even as a king, take away the opportunities to wash us. That's why when you see the picture of Jesus in heaven, he's not only a lamb, he's also a lion. 
These two are the attributes of our Jesus, and they never go away. Hence the physical resurrection and the identity of those nail marks and the piercing in his side that we'll always know him as our gentle king. We will always know him as our serving lion, as our serving conqueror. Amen? That's our Jesus. Nobody else is like him. He says, but one of you's not clean. He's dirty. Look at your neighbor and say, don't be dirty. I don't know how many of y'all dirty in here, but you better get clean. Amen? In Jesus' name, get right before it's too late. Going to find your name upon a graveyard slate. All my 14-year-old soldiers better beware. Hey, young men. Hey, young men. Captain Brian, you better get right before you get left, before you find your name upon a graveyard slate. I know you're not deaf. All my 14-year-old soldiers out there, you better be ready. Hell, the devil, they looking everywhere just to take you out like another hit, smoke you up, blow you out. That's it. Are you ready, boy? Are you ready, boy? You better get Jesus Christ. He's that real McCoy. Because I'm a 6'2 soldier from Fort Wayne representing Jesus Christ and his holy name to all my peoples out there. Y'all still in the game? Woo, you better get your life right before it's too late. Amen? Today, Jesus Christ is calling us. He's asking us not to leave this world without becoming his friend. You don't die and become a friend of God. You die as a friend of God. That's what he's asked us to do. He's going to love us to the end. You get love to the end. Amen? If you're clean, stay clean. If your feet get dirty, ask Jesus to clean your feet. If today you're dirty and you don't have any uh, cleansing yet, come to Jesus and be cleansed, and then keep your feet clean. He knew who would betray him, and he knew that one wasn't clean. Quickly, in closing, as Daryl comes back up, verse 12 and onward, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place, and he said, Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. You see, he didn't give up his titles. He had his titles, but he had a towel with his title. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. What does this mean? This means that now we serve one another and we give one another forgiveness. That doesn't mean we excuse what everybody has done to us, but we forgive them and we wash them with our forgiveness, giving them the chance of repentance. And we serve each other, recognizing that we're all children of God. If Jesus, our master, did this, how much more should we? He said in verse 15, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. That's why there shouldn't be any pride in the church, especially to whatever positions and roles that we have. Because if Jesus, the one that we're worshiping, has become a servant of all, then we all should be servant of all. Amen? When you look at church titles, teacher and Lord don't belong to anybody in that way. He's our great teacher, but I can be a teacher. But no one's going to be Lord. So he's the anointed one. We get the anointing, in other words. That's what I believe teacher means, and Lord means he's Yahweh, right? So if I'm now going to take on teacher as a lesser teacher, and if I'm now going to take on the title son or daughter of God, if I'm going to do those things, and my master who is greater, infinitely greater in those things, has been a servant, how much more should I be a servant as I'm a teacher, as I'm in charge of things? Very truly, I tell you, look at what he says here. Highlight this, please. No servant is greater than his master, not, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. 
Can everybody bless the Lord for the reading of his word today? I, I believe that was the last bit. Can you scroll down? Let me just see. Amen. Let's give it up for this man of God as he comes. Come on up here, man of God. Yes, I want you to come help me in this service. You got to introduce yourself to me, man, because I forget the name. Um, Evangelist Wayman Dodson. spot so please forgive me but uh i just uh yeah i'm I'm drawing a blank here but uh yeah i just would say that uh we continue just to walk in humility praise Uh, god just the power of humility of how jesus uh went so low and i I believe that we're called as many of us are are called to chicago we are called to go low and, and, and I, I was with Heidi Baker in um, uh, Mozambique, and she grabbed me and brought me down on feces. I, I, and she was sitting in feces herself. And she said, Wayman, you got to go low and slow. And so I, I released that over you t- today to go low and go slow. Amen. And uh, stay humble and, 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 and conquer. You're going to conquer mighty things. And, and I just want to pray for you while I'm here this morning, if that's all right. Just, uh, Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, Lord, we just Come on. we just release your fire yes. in this house in a fresh way, God. And I just pray in the mighty name of Jesus, that powerful humility yes. that the preacher man is talking about today, God. You said honor, uh, uh, humility comes before honor yes. in the book of Proverbs, God. And I just declare honor over this Jesus. house as it has, has went so low to serve this city. Thank you, Pastor Joe. I, I really didn't have anything. For Amen. That. Stay up here. Stay up here. Everybody stand up with me, please. Band and altar workers, would you come? Yeah. You know why I felt comfortable putting this man on the spot? Because he lives it. He lives it. When I first met him, he came out to the west side with us, and I said, you are the first one because his heart is to fill up stadiums in Chicago. He's moved here with his family to do evangelistic work. Yeah. I said, we've heard that before, but you're the first one to actually come out to do what we do before you asked us to do what you do. You won my heart right there, man of God. That's why I trust you even if I put you on the spot, which, by the way, you'll probably get used to that in our friendship. <laughs> Is that true, anybody who knows me? <laughs> but I want us to have that heart today of Jesus. I want to ask this man of God, I trust him, to help me pray for you as you guys begin to come forward, especially we'll stand up here especially those of you who have calls on your life. Let's do something special as we're dismissing. If you specifically have a call on your life to serve in those titles of ministry, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, my brother and I, we're going to pray for you today. Isn't that cool? If you don't know Jesus and you need forgiveness, come to our brothers or sisters that are up here. They're going to pray and help you become clean in the name of Jesus. And if today you have issues with your own sin and you want to be sanctified, come on up. We're going to dismiss in worship right now. I'm going to pray a prayer of dismissal. And then we look forward to seeing you next week or at Life Groups. Amen. Father, we thank you for this wonderful service. We pray that we will wash feet everywhere we go.
We pray that those here who have not yet been washed will be washed so that they can go out and wash the feet of those of this world. All of us here, O oh Lord, show us in our heart if there's any unclean ways so that our feet might be pure and holy before you. The gospel of peace being brought forth everywhere we go. Satan, we rebuke you in your lies across this generation and this nation, and we pray for revival to come in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen and amen. God bless you, saints. Can we bless them one more time as we bless the Lord? You are dismissed out this side door. Have a wonderful day. Come on up for prayer if that's something that you want today.